You may be seated. If you would uh, pray with me, and then we're going to go into Ephesians again today together, but let's pray first. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful, beautiful day that you've created. We thank you that we can gather together here as your people. Uh, We thank you for the truth of the words that we've just sung together. Thank you that you are at work in, in ways far beyond any of our understanding. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that we can rest in your finished work and what you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you for giving us your word. Uh, We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to come and to be our teacher and our guide that would take the truth of your eternal word and apply it to our hearts and our minds. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. Uh, We confess without you, uh, this is all a giant waste of time. And so we need you to be our teacher. We need you to be the one that takes your word and applies it to us. We pray this morning that you would do just that, that we would leave here uh, having seen you more clearly, uh, drawing closer to you uh, day by day, uh, being conformed to your image. We thank you uh, for the time we have together. We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Um, I'm sure I don't, it's not news to you uh, what happened this week, the sadness of of another uh, school shooting. Uh, I'm sure you saw those headlines, 17 students killed in a, in a school in Florida. And uh, as, as I saw that, um, sadly, you see it and it's almost like we've gotten used to it a little bit. It's so uh, pervasive. Uh, but what really saddened me, not just about the actual event, obviously that being the most sad, but I saw several friends that I know uh, kind of just post different things about uh, praying that this would end or or t- uh, sharing like a statistic of, of how many shootings there's been or that sort of thing. And every time I saw that almost immediately, uh, uh, like on social media, almost directly underneath it, it turned into a debate, uh, turned into uh, people arguing over the way we should address it and what it should look like. And oftentimes turning into a very ugly debate very quickly. And that's not a statement on on who's right or who's wrong. It's just simply no matter what the issue is, uh, we have such a division in our country right now in so many ways. And we want to argue about those things and go against. And so it's almost like no matter what issue you pick, uh, here's a tragedy that happens. And I think we could all agree that we would hope it would never, ever happen again. But yet somehow we find a place to argue over it. And so there's this division, this deep division in our country. And, and it see, you see it kind of played out uh, before you a lot of times, like on social media. I think social media could be a good thing in some ways. It's giving voice to people that maybe didn't have a voice before. But when you suddenly have immediate access, oftentimes with anonymity, it gets very ugly very quickly. And you see that happening over and over. And it, it, it saddens me when I read that. Uh, it immediately comes to mind when I read things like that. Uh, Proverbs 15, where it says a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, we taught that to our boys when they were very little and we remind them of it almost daily. Uh, but it's true when we when we respond in those ways, it just gets uglier very quickly. Or, or maybe even a better verse would be James chapter one, where he says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I want you just to think about that statement. The Bible tells us the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so when we 
respond in those ways instead of a soft answer that turns away wrath when we attack and when we continue to do that there is this hostility and this division that is growing in our country and we seem to be so uh, against one another in so many ways right now and i and i start there and i mention that this morning because what Paul is going to be talking about and addressing here is there's some deep divisions among the people he's writing to in the early church. Some hostility that has been long sown into these people and into their lives. And it's really not very different than some of the hostility and the things that we see around us. And so I want us to look this morning at what Paul says as he writes and he's addressing these deep divisions from these different groups within the early church. And what he's going to say that exposes the heart issue that leads to that hostility. And what I would submit to you this morning is it's the exact same heart issue that we see in our world today. The same things that are causing these deep rifts, this division and this hostility. The reason that we see people when it seems like we should all be agreeing that we don't want to see this happen, how quickly it devolves into people arguing. And talking louder and not listening to one another. And so I think what Paul says here is very vitally relevant to our culture today. Now, what he's talking to and he's addressing, it's coming out a little differently because it's a different culture at a different time. But the heart issue is the same. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter two as we go back into our study of Ephesians. We're going to pick up at verse 11 this morning. We'll probably make it through about 17 or 18 and then we'll do the second part of it next week. But this is the way I want us to look at the first part of verses 11 through 22. The first question I want us to ask is what is the root of the hostility between the people here? Paul's going to address them. and He's going to talk about the dividing wall and the hostility and the things that are there and tearing them down. And so I want us to consider what's the root of that hostility. Then secondly, what is the truth that Paul brings out that can truly bring peace? That can tear down the walls that are being put up. Can help bring unity instead of division. And then lastly, how do we live that out daily just in our relationships? And, and I want to encourage you as we look at this that I think there's the truth that Paul's bringing out is true in a global sense. It's, it's true in our political discourse. It's true in great big areas, but it's also true in our personal relationships. The heart issue is the same and what he's offering changes it in both ways, whether it's great big overarching things or it's just in your personal relationships. And so it's vitally relevant what Paul's saying. So let's consider that together. Consider the root of the hostility. And so pick up with me in verse 10. And let me just summarize for you if you haven't been here with us as we're going through Ephesians. All right, Ephesians 2, we spent two weeks on 1 through 10. And what it says is that all of us, every single one of us, apart from the saving grace of God, is spiritually dead. That we seek our own way, we're selfish and self-centered, but God being rich in mercy has caused us to become alive in Jesus. It's taken us and turned us inside out and showed us our great need for him. And by grace, you have been saved through faith. And now you are a new creation. That's what he says in one through ten. Said the last few weeks, that's maybe my favorite passage in all the Bible. And it gets to verse 10 and he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Right? So we were dead and now we're alive and we're a new creation and God has created these works for us to walk in. And then he says, therefore. Right? So remember, this is really corny, but you'll remember it. Whenever you see therefore, you ask, what is the therefore therefore? Right? Because it's, it's summarizing something before it. I know it's stupid, but you'll remember it now. Right? It's so dumb that you're like, oh, well, okay, yeah, can remember that. Uh, but it's there to, to point you back to what he just said. So you're this new creation. He's done this work. It's all his grace. He's brought you to life. He has these new works for you to walk on. So therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so he's addressing two groups throughout this. And he's talking about Gentiles and the Jews or the Israelites, religious and irreligious people. So it's a way we could summarize it today. Gentile is just a term that's used for all those that are not Israelites. And so he speaks to the Gentiles and he says, you Gentiles, remember, Paul is a Jew. So he's turning to them and saying, you who are Gentiles, this is what they called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. And he begins to talk about this, this image and this picture and this division that's between Jews and Gentiles. Right? He's going to talk about the wall of hostility between them. But you need to have a little bit of a history of what's going on to understand what he's addressing. Some of the root of the problems that are there. And so if you go back and you read through the Old Testament, what we have is that God calls this man Abraham in Genesis 12. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless the world through your seed. I'm going to show the world what I'm like through Abraham and you and your descendants. And ultimately, I'm going to save the world through your descendant talking about Jesus. And so God calls Abraham. Then Abraham has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son, Jacob. And then Jacob's name is changed by God to Israel, which where we get the nation of Israel and God's people and what he's doing. So so we have that conception in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God says, I'm going to do this work and I'm going to bless the world through you. And so God takes them and he grows them into this people. He saves them from slavery in Egypt. He brings them into a land. He gives them his law. He gives them plans for how to worship and a temple and all these things. And the sign, the outward sign of the inward reality of who they now are as a people is circumcision. Right? So that's what he's talking about when he says the circumcision to the uncircumcision. But what they were to do as God's people were to be a light to the world. They were to be holy, set apart to God. That's what holy means. To be different than the way the rest of the world was, but to show the world what God was like. Right? That's just the way the Old Testament goes. But what you see, and if you know the Old Testament as you read through it, what happens with these people that were supposed to be a light? They blow it. And they blow it over and over and over again. And in fact, oftentimes they end up just looking like the rest of the world. And they continue to do it and they continue to have issues. But instead of taking God's law and what it was created for, God gives his law. This is a whole sermon in and of itself, but we won't just big picture. God gives his law to constrain evil, to show us how to live, but then to show us that we haven't kept it. That we desperately need God's grace in our life. 
in the Old Testament, we need God's grace and we need to trust them. And he's pointing ahead that one is going to come to save us being Jesus. Right. So that's the point of the law. That we would live, we would trust him, it would constrain the evil, but it would show us that we haven't done it. And so God puts Israel with the law for that purpose to be a light to the world. But what happens is they blow it. And as they blow it, what begins to morph in their understanding and the way they operate is they use the law as a way to look down on other people who don't have the law. It becomes their identity. We're the people of the law. We're the rule keepers and we're the rule followers and we're the circumcised and you're the uncircumcised, the non rule keepers, the ones that are bad and unclean and wrong and all that goes with it. And what happens is we go through the Old Testament and then the time is set and Jesus comes and he steps into the world and he has very pointed criticisms for the Jews who act this way. The harshest things that you see Jesus say is he goes and he speaks and he teaches are to the ones that are doing just that. He says, you've missed it. You don't understand what this was to be about. He has very pointed criticism. Probably a, a, a good example is Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a parable. Right? And Luke sets it up this way. He says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus said this to those who thought they had it all together by what they were doing and they were looking down on everyone else. And he tells it this way. He says there were two men who went up to the temple to pray and one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee being a Jewish religious leader at the time. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. And then Jesus goes on to tell the story. He says, The uh, tax collector stands off to the side and won't even look up and beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, God, because I am a sinner. And Jesus finishes the story and he says, the tax collector is the one that went away justified. They were totally missing it. They were using it to make themselves look better and look down on the people around them. And you see what's happening And so when we say that there's this division that grows between the Jews and the Gentiles, the religious, the irreligious, all the things that are there, that's part of what's going on. I mean, part of it is there's a division in the sense that they don't have the law. They haven't been given all the things that the Jews have. Like Romans tells us, the Jews had the oracles of God, the very words of God. And the Gentiles are kind of left on the outside And then they're using them or misusing them in this way. And it causes all these issues. And so you see this happening. And when that happens, you have one group looking down on the other group. What happens is the Gentiles begin to hate the Jews. You guys are so self-righteous. And you look down on us and you tell us how wrong we are and we're unclean and we can't come in and all these things over and over. And so they end up hating each other. But here's the thing I want you to see when you think about this. Is that not exactly what's happening in our culture today? Whatever the issue is, one side decides we're right and we've figured this out and we've got it together and they take a very self-righteous stance, whatever it is, 
we're the moral ones or we're the tolerant ones or we're the enlightened ones. And those people over there don't get it. And you know what happens when somebody says that to you? It makes you angry and you go, who are you talking about? It puts up a wall of hostility, a division. And you can see that with just about any issue in our country. As soon as someone has an opinion, someone has the opposite opinion and they're going to shame them and look down both ways. It's not one way or the other. It happens to both sides. And then people get upset. I can't believe they're looking down at me or, or, or the irony. Those people are so self-righteous. I'm glad I'm not self-righteous like they are. Right. We become self-righteous in that we're not self-righteous. And it's the same heart issue and it's the same thing that's happening here. You see the same dynamic and it's happening over and over. But here's the problem that comes out of this. We end up getting our identity by what we're not. I want you to think about that. We get our identity. I'm glad I'm not like those people over there, whatever it is. Right. I'm enlightened and I've figured it out and I see it correctly. But those people don't get it. That's what our country's like right now on almost every issue. Those people. Right. And it ends up with this division on all these ways and all of this. And you see it daily in the way we talk and the way our discourse goes. And so the problem is it's a vicious cycle that grows and this hostility continues to grow because both sides do this. And what ends up happening, or I'd say the problem that we see that Paul's going to point us to is, is we have this, this self-righteousness. I've figured it out. I've got it together. And they're wrong. And so what the problem becomes is we get our identity from what we're not. We start to operate that way. And it's just a vicious cycle that goes on and on. So what is the answer here? How do we deal with that? Well, look at what he says. Pick up in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he himself might create in one man, one new man in the place of two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So I want you to follow Paul's logic. Now, I am a total dork. So it's like I love this right here. Right. What I mean by that is like I'm all about like the, the argument that goes from this point to this point, I think very linearly. And so I get real excited about this kind of thing when Paul talks this way. I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense to me. Right. But you've got to follow what he's saying because it is logical, but it goes from one point to the next to the next. And so look at what he says here about how this works. How does what he says here kill the hostility and bring unity and bring peace? How does it answer this? And so he says in verse 16 that we might be reconciled, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so the first thing he says is that it's by Jesus and what he does on the cross that kills the hostility. Right? That's a big idea. No surprise here. But the answer is Jesus. That's always the answer. 
I only have one sermon, really. It's going to come back to, to Jesus. But that's the answer. But then you've got to understand how that's the answer, the way it works. Right? Jesus does this on the cross that kills the hostility. But how? Go back to verse 14, what he says. For he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he's going to bring down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. What he does on the cross, it says in verse 16, but then verse 15, he says he's going to bring down this dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. And so he's kind of pointing us back to this idea of the law. And I want you to think about all of this all the way through. And I think we could summarize it like this. And then we'll talk about how this works. Jesus' death on the cross kills the hostility by giving us peace, bringing us to unity as one by doing away with the law. How does that work? You go, okay, okay, I'll take your word. That's what it says. But how does that work? How does that actually bring unity? How does it tear down the dividing wall of hostility the way he says it does? And so I think the key is, is here in verse 16. So look at verse 16. He's going to make peace so that he might make peace at the end of verse 15, verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross. And so what you need to see is the key to all of this. All our problems and all our struggles and all our division and all our hostility can be traced back to that we need to be reconciled to God. All of us. That's at the, the bottom of all these problems. That we need to be reconciled to God and it brings us to one together. And so I want you to think about how this works. There's this problem here with the law because he says he wants to give us peace through what Jesus does by getting rid of the law. And so you have to think about the ways that we misuse the law. And the law just I'm talking about right now, talk about just the Ten Commandments. The law is more than that in the Old Testament, but it certainly includes the Ten Commandments. We're familiar with that, so just, just stay right there for a second. The Ten Commandments being the way that God has shown us that we're to live and love and care for one another and respond to Him. But the Ten Commandments, or the law was given to us, not that we could justify ourselves, but to constrain evil, to show us how to live, but then to show us that we haven't done it. To show us that we need God's grace in our life. But what happens is we take the law and we seek to make it be the way we justify ourselves. I do these things. Those people don't do those things. So now I'm a better person. Right? Which puts up a wall of hostility because now I'm looking down at these people and I'm operating that way. Does that make sense? But there's something else going on here because the Bible tells us that the law, uh, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, Romans 3, is to stop every mouth and to hold us accountable to God. It's to show us that we haven't done it. God didn't give us the law and then say, "Okay, here's your way to heaven. Keep all these perfectly and you'll make it. If he did, that would be a burden that would crush every single one of us. We would all fail and there'd be nothing good about it. But that's not what he does. Now, that's the way they took it 
And that's the way they began to misuse it. And that's the way they looked down on people and divided people. But that's never what God was doing. And so when we start to look at the way that works and what happens, if we're misusing it and we're finding our identity and doing these rules and keeping these rules and looking down on the people who aren't, then that's going to continue to cause problems, right? It's going to continue to keep the wall of hostility that's there. And I think the truth is every one of us knows this innately. That we need to be reconciled to God. That's why we try to take things like the Ten Commandments and make it be the way I'm going to earn my way to God. We do this all the time. Our conscience bears witness that something's wrong, so I'm going to do some things that will separate me from some other people so I feel better about myself. Does that make sense? I would I would say to you that you know this just whenever um, someone questions you on the way that you've responded to something. Right? You know this innately. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you get in an argument with somebody and they go, you know what? You didn't respond well in that. What do you immediately try to do? Yeah. Everybody goes, justify yourself. Make an excuse. Right? I have a very sensitive son and I won't say which one, but I have one son that is very sensitive. And he says, you're so mean. I mean, you can say, take a shower, buddy. You are so mean. But there are times when he says, you're talking mean to me. And I have to stop and go, am I? Because he's so sensitive, sometimes I don't know. But the truth is, when he says that, I, I can immediately make an excuse. And go, oh, I'm not being mean. You're just sensitive. I don't say that to him. But, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Right? But you know what I mean. Like, you get in an argument with your spouse. And they say, I, I, I don't like the way you're talking to me. And you immediately go, well, I've had a long day. Or I'm tired or I, I'm responding to the way you responded to me. We make excuses because we know that there's something not right. We're, we're seeking to justify ourselves. It's the same way uh, we use the law. We use the different things. It's the same reason we latch on to certain issues that we want to be right about. Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. I've got this right and those people have it wrong. So now I feel better about me. Does any of that make sense to you? Anybody do that? Right? Maybe a little bit? Yeah. And it's, we're seeking to justify ourselves. So I want you to follow Paul's argument here of what he says Jesus has done that gets us away from that. He says Jesus' death on the cross kills the hostility by giving us peace making us come together in one and abolishing the law. What's he talking about? See, when Jesus comes and he steps into this life, he lives this life perfectly in every way. And he comes and he says, you uh, who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. You know, what he was talking about the people that were being crushed by all the rules of the Pharisees. He said, no, no, you come to me. And what Jesus is saying is, I've come to do what you can't do for you. Yes, the law was there to show you how to live, but it was there ultimately to show you you can't do this and you need me. That's what Jesus was saying. And so he steps in and he does everything perfectly and he lives it. Everything. He keeps the law in every way. And he loves God and he loves people perfectly. And he gets to the end of his life and he deserves all the blessings that come with that. 
But instead of taking all the blessings that he deserves, he says, I will give you all the blessings of my life and I will take your sin onto me. Second Corinthians five. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God comes through Jesus and what he does for us. The grace of God given to us through what only God can do for us. And so when Jesus comes and he lives that perfect life and he does that and then he lays down his life on our behalf. In doing so, he offers us his righteousness by grace through faith. That's the beginning of Ephesians 2. You were dead, but God great, great in mercy has caused you to become alive. You have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not your doing. You couldn't do it. And so hear what he's saying when he talks about he gives us peace and he abolishes the law. You don't have to justify yourself by the law. You can't do it. See, Romans 3 says that every mouth is stopped and everyone is made accountable to God because we see the law and we recognize that we can't do it. And it is this weight that suddenly we go, I can't do it. But it's in that seeing God's grace comes in and says, you can't do it, but God can do it. And so Jesus does it in his flesh by going to the cross. Now, now follow his reasoning. That looking down on other people. Those people over there are outside the law and they haven't done it. And those people have. And it says, no, 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 we're all saved the same way. There shouldn't be a wall. Verse 17, look at what he says. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, the irreligious, the ones that didn't grow up in the church. And he says, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. We're saved the same way. And so what he's saying is that we're all in the same boat, that the hostility is a symptom of our alienation from God. And now in Jesus, that's gone. You can have complete and total access to the father through what Christ has done. You are forgiven. You are made new. You are loved completely and totally. And it's apart from your uh, your performance. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to seek to get your identity from what you're not. You don't have to seek to get your identity from looking down on other people because your identity is secure in who God is and what he's done for you and Jesus and nothing else. So when he says he's going to destroy the dividing wall of hostility, he's going to tear this down. He's going to kill the hostility and make two people into one. He's talking about what Jesus has done for us. The glorious good news of the gospel. And now you're free to love everybody around you. You don't have to look down on them. I had a friend who used to say. Every single person you meet is one of God's children. It's just some of them aren't talking to God right now. And the truth is, that's all of us. Even when we have a saving relationship and even when we're trusting in Jesus and even when we're walking that, we forget that at times during the day. We want to go back to our old way of thinking. 
But it's all Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that over and over. All the hostility is a symptom of needing to be reconciled to God through what Christ has done. And when we're resting in our identity in Jesus, it blows apart those. I'm going to look down on those people and those people over there. Because it's only what Jesus does for it. That's the only way. And so I want you to just practically think about how we live this out day to day. What does that look like in our interactions? Whether it's great big issues, political issues, or it's just you and your wife at home. And the first thing I would say to you is you root and ground your identity in Jesus. You are dearly loved and accepted and forgiven and made new. And it's all because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. And when that happens, you get to this place of of beginning to see you don't have to prove that you're right all the time. You don't have to control all these. You don't have to uh, get your identity from I do these things and I'm right and all this and you're wrong. Your identity is rooted and grounded in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And there's a wonderful rest and a peace that he's talking about here when that happens. I can rest in that. But then the second thing that goes right along with it, and this is so very important, is that we always, always, always see Jesus as the hero. It's because he is. But oftentimes we want to make it about like, look at what I've done and I'm smart enough and I've figured this out. That is a lie. And that is a lie based on what Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says. You were dead, but God being rich in mercy caused you to become alive. He's doing this work in you. It's by his grace that he's changing you. You are not the hero. Ever. And that's a good thing. Don't get your toes stepped on by that. That's a really good thing. That it's always Jesus and what he's doing. And so what happens is when we root and ground our identity in Jesus, seeing that he's always the hero, it produces in us a humility. A holiness that's born out of that humility. When someone says to you, you wronged me and you said that really ugly. When we are really rooted and grounded in Jesus, you know what can happen? You can go, you're right. And I am sorry. You know how that works? Because you realize you're forgiven in Jesus. That you don't prove yourself by how good you're doing in these areas, but your identity is all in Jesus and he's the hero. And I desperately need him every single day of my life. It's so freeing when my children say to me, but dad, you're, you're raising your voice and you're yelling. And I can look at him and go, you're right. And I'm sorry. And I desperately need Jesus today. Do you see how that does away with the wall of hostility? Instead of I'm going to tell you how wrong you are and look down at you, I'm going to go, no, I desperately need Jesus every moment of every day. And I know you do, too. And it blows those things apart instead of being tempted to respond in anger. I'm going to argue and argue you into my position. 
Believe the lie that anger produces the righteousness of God. I can actually rest in my identity of who I am in Jesus and believe that the way that God has changed me by experiencing his grace when I was dead in my sins is the exact way he's going to use me and other people's life to show the grace of God by being gracious to them. Do you see how that works? That as we're united with Christ, we become changed into his image. And God uses that to change people. Can you imagine what our world would look like? If we show what Jesus was like in every interaction. By the way, you can't do that. But Jesus can. Through the power of the spirit remaking you into his image, he can begin to do that. He can produce in you a, a humility to admit when you're wrong and point people more fully to Jesus. Oh, that we would begin to do that, that we would take God seriously, what he says here in his word. The dividing wall of hostility comes down through what Jesus has done and nothing else. This is really good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of your gospel. Forgive us when we forget that. Forgive us when we want to make things about our opinions and our anger and our self-righteousness and the ways that we begin to operate with one another. I pray that you would produce in us a holy humility. That you would remind us fully that all that we have and all that we are and all that we will ever be is by what you've done for us in Jesus. I pray right now uh, for each one here that's wrestling with those things, that's maybe struggling with the reality of that, that we all do this at different times. And I pray that you would flood them with your grace, that you would show them, show each one of us how desperately we need you. And it's all because of you that we can rest. We thank you. We thank you for the peace that you give us in Jesus. And we pray all of it in his precious name. Amen.